Well, open your Bibles to Isaiah 30. And um, we're going to look tonight at Isaiah's what third message um, to Judah regarding this crisis with Assyria and Judah's own unfaithfulness um, toward the Lord. And i got to be honest, you know, it's been really interesting to me as a preacher to, to like, study um, this series of messages that Isaiah's doing. Like, it's really kind of interesting to me to, to study these series of messages that are specifically tailored toward um, turning Judah away from, um, you know, her rebellion and her sin. And so, what we're going to see tonight, you know, so far Isaiah has not mentioned Egypt by name as uh, Judah's worthless hope and her false savior. Neither has he mentioned Assyria by name and identifying them as the, you know, temporal threat to the nation, but that's going to end tonight in this sermon. And really, uh, what I want us to see is that chapters 30 and 31, these next two sermons are really sort of complementary messages. Both of them denounce Judah's alliance uh, with Egypt in no uncertain terms, but they have, they each have a different yet mutual, mutually supporting emphasis. Um, chapter 30 focuses on the grace that the Lord longs to show uh, to his people. And chapter 31 kind of focuses or centers on the repentance that needs to take place before that grace can be enjoyed. And so they're part of this, they're, they're part of this series of messages whose purpose is to turn the nation back to God. And, you know, we see, we're going to see that they actually succeed in the thing for which God sent them. We know that, um, that in, in the crisis that subsequently unfolds, Hezekiah does in fact turn back um, wholeheartedly to the Lord and Yahweh saves the city of Jerusalem at the very last moment by his gracious intervention. And so these words, um, the word of God through Isaiah, they do the divine work of turning Hezekiah's heart back to God as the only source of salvation, which points us, of course, to the power and the might of God's word, right? That's that God's word is what does, you know, the necessary work. So here's what we're going to do. We're not going to read this entire sermon just all at once at the beginning because it's 33 verses and it's really long, right? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to actually just, this really, this sermon breaks down into three sections. So I'll just tell you what the sections are and then we'll take a look at them um, one at a time, okay? So first it begins with an unflattering, uh, deliberately unflattering description of the spiritual state of Judah, Okay. And then there's a turning point in the middle of this, of this text. Verse 18 is the, is the verse on which the whole thing pivots, okay? And it is the account of God's desire to show His grace and His faithfulness to Judah. And then after that, Isaiah gives us a picture of how God will intervene and reveal Himself as teacher, as healer, and as warrior, okay? So that's the idea here. It's a really, it's a, it's a tightly constructed, really excellent, um, sermon. Of course it is. It's inspired by the Spirit of God and it's the Word of God, but you know what I'm saying. It's like really great. So look with me first at these first 17 uh, verses, which describe a stubborn and a rebellious and a lying and just a, a totally messed up Judah. Okay, so let's look at it. It says, ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, 
Shall the protection of Pharaoh, therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to humiliation. For those officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes. Everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beasts of the Negev. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word in trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments, not a shard is found from which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in strength, in trust, I mean, shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Wow. So what do we have here? Okay, what, what do we see in here in, this, in these first 17 verses of Isaiah's sermon? Well, first I want you to take note of a few things. First of all, God describes the nation of Judah as what? As stubborn children, as rebellious sons, right? That are determined to ignore the clear counsel of God and instead pursue this foolish plan to achieve independence from Assyria by making a reckless political alliance with Egypt rather than relying on the Lord who is their sword and shield, right? That's not God's plan, obviously. It's not, he says, directed by his spirit, but they're determined to do what they wish without asking for the Lord's direction simply because it seems best to them. Right? What do you think about that? How many foolish, harebrained, destructive schemes find their origin in what seems best to us? Yeah. All of them? Right? All of them? Right? So, their political decisions, right? Really what they are, and, and, and Isaiah, you know, hones in on this. They're an outgrowth of their unbelief in Yahweh. That's really what it is. Like, what they're doing, their, their decisions nationally are really just an outgrowth of their distrust their mistrust, their, their lack of confidence in, 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 in Almighty God, right? 
Yahweh's Lord of all. And, and, and they won't recognize that. And here's the thing that, that is really important for us, I think, to take from this, that, look, Yahweh, Almighty God, He's Lord of all, and whether or not you respect and honor and submit to His Lordship is inevitably, it is inevitably reflected, listen to me now, in the way that you make decisions, whether individually or politically or otherwise. What you truly think about God, what you really believe in your heart, about him, about his word, about his ways, is inevitably reflected in the way that you make decisions, whether it's individually, whether it's in a corporate setting, whether it's politically, whatever it is. Your decisions betray what you think about God. And moreover, that they would go to Egypt, right, and try to find deliverance. Look at verse 2. To take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. That they would do that is particularly revealing of their wretched spiritual state and as a result, their clouded thinking, okay? Why am I saying that? A few reasons. One of all, first of all is, the Lord has already demonstrated, right, his superiority over Egypt, hadn't he? Hadn't God already shown that he was superior to Egypt and all the, all the gods of Egypt? Right, he did it at the Exodus, correct? And in fact, ever since then, he had been known to Israel by this familiar refrain, the Lord your God, who what? who brought you out of Egypt, right? So it's not hyperbole to say that, theologically speaking, for Judah to go down to, to Egypt for help was really to commit apostasy. That's what it was. We're going we're gonna to disregard the God who has proven himself to us, and instead we're going to go chase after the gods of Egypt, and in particular the, fault, the, the chief false god of Egypt, Pharaoh. It's an act of apostasy, right? I mean, but, but moreover, it, it's, it wasn't, it wasn't merely apostasy. It was that chiefly above all other things, but it was just plain stupid as a matter of national defense. It was, it was an ignorant thing to do. Here's why Egypt had never proven, never once proven to be a refuge for anybody that had made a treaty with them. They were notorious for making treaties, getting the money, and reneging on their promises. They were famous for it, man. I mean, like, they, they, they had, they had become like a, sort of a byword, you know, become like the Egyptians kind of thing. They, they were the least trustworthy people in the Middle East. Egypt had never proved to be a refuge. In fact, if you remember back to Isaiah 20, you probably don't, but I'll remind you what was there. If you remember back to Isaiah 20, Egypt had left had, had left the Philistines swinging in the wind. Remember when the Philistines were going to rebel against Assyria and Egypt was backing them and then Egypt was like, oops. And the Philistines got smashed at Ashdod. Yeah. So, I mean, they had never, they had never been trustworthy at all. They talked a big game. They loved to boast of their supporters and power, you know, their chariots and, and all that stuff. But in reality, you know what they were? They were all talk and no action. That's what they were. Or in Texas, they used to call them all hat, no cattle, right? You know, that's, that was the, they spoke, or here's another one for you. They spoke loudly and carried a small stick, right? That was the idea of Egypt. In fact, in verse seven, Yahweh describes them like this. This is actually, it's actually very funny. It's, it doesn't appear that way because we're not in on the joke yet, but you will be in a second. He says, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still, Right? Now, Rahab, that's not the same name or the same spelling as the Canaanite woman who protected the Israelite spies. Rahab had become a nickname for Egypt that meant the proud one or the turbulent one. 
And, and, and when it says who sits still, it literally means a do nothing. And so from God's perspective, Egypt was a proud, turbulent do nothing. They just caused a bunch of clamor and talk, but they never actually did anything that they promised to do. But Judah was determined to stack sin upon sin, right? They were determined to increase their guilt before God. And so despite Isaiah's exhortations and his correction, Judah's envoys, okay, the, the, the guys that they had sent forth to, to make the treaty and everything with, with Egypt, they had already reached, by the time he's preaching this message, Zoan and Hanes in the Nile Delta. Okay, That's the reference to, to those that are there in, in, in Zoan and Hanes. It's, it's Judah's envoys. And moreover, pack animals were passing southward through the wild Negev region, right? Where lions and adders and flying furpy... Flying furpy. Flying... <laughs> Flying fiery serpents roamed and played, right? They were, here's what they were doing. Isaiah's like, here's how dumb you are. You are taking your riches and your treasures. You are depleting yourselves by emptying your resources and giving them to a nation that could not and would not help you. They were running headlong into disaster, right? They were following according to human wisdom that seemed what well, but seemed smart and wise to them, and all it was leading them to was to utter destruction. Right? Don't trust your own wisdom. Don't ever trust your own wisdom. Not ever. There's a reason Scripture says we need our minds renewed, because our own fallen wisdom will always lead us into destruction. Always. Oh, but it seems so easy. It seems so perfect. Did you pray about it? No. Well, there you go. Did you heed wise counsel? No. Well, there you go. Did you did you search the scriptures? Well, no. Well, there you go. Right. In response, when you see what what Yahweh tells Isaiah to do, it's interesting. He says, "Write it before them on a tablet." And inscribe it in a book. Okay, that's verse 8. Write it before them on a tablet. Inscribe it in a book. Now, here's the idea. The tablet would be some kind of like placard or sign, right? It would be something that you'd write and you'd hang up in town. So everybody could go by and they'd read it, right? So it was a kind of a way of like posting your sermons before the internet, right? You would, you would write down the, the essence of the message and then it would be hung up in public so that people would be forced to read basically Isaiah's warning, actually really God's warning to Judah that they must repent, right? That, that, that it would be always before them. And the book or the scroll to which God's referring would be that everlasting witness. So there'd be the public witness, right? And then there was also the everlasting witness, the imperishable word of God. And that book is the book of Isaiah's testimony. It's what we're holding tonight. Right? Well, what Judah needed to see was that their greatest issue facing them, it wasn't the Assyrian threat, it was their own spiritual hardness and their own opposition to God. That was their problem. In fact, verses 9-11 through 11 are really powerful and plain. Look at them again. It says, For they are a rebellious people, lying children, Children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord who say to the seers, and I heard some of y'all moaning or 
Ronan, when I said this, but it's true. Who says here, do not see into the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right, speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Boy, does that sound familiar. <laughs> well, maybe, right? I mean, it sounds a lot, you know, as regards Israel, it sounds a lot like what we heard on Sunday, doesn't it? And what these pictures combine to, to, what these words combine to, to do is to paint a picture of a people who are defiant, right? And this is the thing. I want you to, here's the important, don't miss this. God refers to them here as children who had received very good gifts from God, who had formed them into a nation, right? And yet they were defiant. They were hard-hearted. They were bitter. They lied to God through their false worship. They lied to themselves that they were in right standing with Him and they were unwilling to receive the instruction of the Lord God which would deliver them. So this recalcitrant, hard-hearted, you know, just, you know, pig-headed, Stubborn, like know-it-alls, really. And what's worse, they applied pressure to the nation's prophets to tone it down and support the official party line, right? They didn't want to hear a word from God. I mean, they wanted to hear religious words. They just didn't want to hear anything that actually came from God. They didn't want anything to do with divine correction. Rather, they wanted the prophets to speak to them pleasant things and smooth things, things that were easy to hear, flattering words that only disguised the reality of their conduct and the dire situation that they were in. They asked for illusions. That's a word that means worthless, like that, that's a word that means disillusions, a word that means worthless trivialities, right? They wanted to hear things which would leave their lives unruffled and unexamined, a ministry of trifles that would tell them what they wanted to hear. They encouraged the prophets to turn aside from the faithful path of speaking for Yahweh so they could live in a fool's paradise that was untroubled by the plain words of God and which left their religious sensitivities and their, you know, consciences anesthetic anesthetized, thank you, by platitudes. They just didn't want to hear about the Holy One of Israel anymore. Don't talk to us about Him. They wanted the preaching tailored to match their outlook, match their presuppositions, so their consciences would go on undisturbed and they could do what suited them. And they got what they asked for, except in Isaiah. Alec Motyer said, talking about this section, he said, you know, to reject the Word of the Lord is to make an enemy of the Lord of the Word. He's right. In fact, in all of this, it sounds very much, doesn't it, like what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4? For the time is coming, what? When people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Do you remember his command to Timothy before that? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Right? 
Isaiah faithfully spoke a word that was out of season. He told them exactly the destruction to which their sin would lead. In fact, he describes it very interestingly as a breach in a wall. Right? As a breach in a wall. I want you to think about that, right? Like if you're at home and your wall all of a sudden starts to bow out, that's a clue there's something wrong, isn't there? Like I remember going downstairs one time and the water was leaking from our sink, you know, in our kitchen, and it was leaking onto our ceiling in the basement. And the only reason I went down is I think, was it you, Gabe, that was like, hey, there's water coming out of the light. And I'm like, shut up. Like, what are you talking about, right? And then he's like, no, really, there's like water pouring out of the light. And I went down there and sure enough, there was water pouring out of the light. And it was sagging and I thought, well, I got an option. I can either stand here and watch this thing fall or I can put something down before it does, right? They were, you know, he presents it as, here you are, you're looking at this, this wall, this breach in a wall, it's bulging out. It's telling you a collapse is coming. And yet, no one wanted to take notice. And the breaking of that wall, like when it all, you know, cut loose, it would be so violent, so thorough, there wouldn't be any pieces left to either carry a glowing ember or scoop enough water to drink. That's how bad it would be. Their entire plan would lead to misery. And in fact, look at verse 16. It, it pictures, you know, Judah's boasting in Egyptian horses, their imaginary strength and their might. The reality was something very much different. In verse 17, Isaiah says, A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Anybody notice anything interesting about that prophecy? Anything stick out to you? A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee. It's the exact reverse of the promise that God gave to the nation of Israel in Leviticus 28.6. Or, I'm sorry, 26.8. There it says, five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. But it's all flip-flop now. Is that Leviticus 28? Leviticus 26.8. And as a result, what was going to happen? Well, here's what was going to happen. The Assyrians were going to stand at the gate of Jerusalem, with all of Judah in ruins behind them, which is exactly what happened. And Jerusalem itself would stand isolated and forlorn in the midst of a ravaged land like a flagstaff on a mountaintop or a flag on a hill. Why does it have to be that way? Why does it have to be that way? Yeah, it's because they chose it. In verse 15, the answer is found in verse 15. Look at it and notice the tense. For thus said the Lord God. Not thus says, thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were what? Unwilling. Sounds like Jesus overlooking Jerusalem. How I long to gather you. But you were unwilling. Right? The Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, the one they didn't want to hear anything else about, had said to them, past tense, in returning and rest you'll be saved. Through Isaiah, God had continually been calling Judah to repentance. That's what the word return actually means there. It means, it means not just, you know, return to somebody, you know, 
because you have no other choice. It's the idea of repentance. You know, and he had been preaching re- repentance and, and rest in him. He'd called them to return, not with an outward show of repentance, minus the heart, but a true return to the Lord. One that would cause them to really rest in his patient reliance, you know, upon the Lord. He called them to quietness, to the absence of, of panic and restlessness by not burying their heads in the, not, not by burying their heads in the sand, but by actively trusting God and not themselves. There they would find strength. There they would find the strength both spiritually and politically that they desperately needed, but they would have none of it. None of it. They would rather go through the furious and and vain and, you know, just diminishing, you know, Efforts on their own and argue with God to an end. So they could be destroyed? I'm going to keep the fight up with God until He destroys me. Then He'll see how sincere I am. Yeah, right. It was foolishness. They, they, they're stubborn rebellious and self-deceiving faithlessness towards God's and their their unwillingness to repent got them in this position, right? And by all rights, Jerusalem has just been wiped from the face of the earth. But praise God, that's not the end of the story, right? And it's never the end of the Gospel, right? We make ourselves worthless. We make ourselves wretched. We try everything we can to make ourselves acceptable to God. We do all these efforts at self-justification and self-excuse that lead to nothing except further condemnation. And then God acts in grace towards us in a way that we do not deserve. He applies the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to our souls. He draws forth faith and He redeems and saves us. Right? And what He does, you know, for us personally... In a temporal sense, he does here for Judah. You know, there's still a promise for them. There's still the promise of divine faithfulness and grace that's desperately needed. In fact, the entire sermon turns on this next verse. We read it. Verse 18, Therefore, that is, in light of all of your unfaithfulness, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. And that picture is remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. It's not what you would expect. Mm-mm. It pictures God's patience, right? It pictures His long-suffering. His kindness to a people that don't deserve it at all. God doesn't just merely write Judah off, praise God. You know? And praise God, He doesn't do that with us either, although we give Him ample reasons to do so. The pictures of God waiting until just the right time to demonstrate His grace, ready to rise up and to exalt or magnify Himself by showing mercy to Judah, to bless all those who wait for Him. Now, I don't want us to have the wrong picture here, okay? Again, you've heard me say something like this, but I'm going to say it again. I don't want to say the wrong picture. It's not that God is sitting passively in the heavens, wringing His hands and hoping for the opportunity to show His mercy and His grace, hopeful that there will be some of those in Judah that will wait for Him. A phrase that means that will long for Him. 
He's not up there just hoping maybe this might take place. As the God of justice, God was orchestrating the destruction of outer Judah and the siege of Jerusalem to arrest the hearts of his remnant. Those that were already identified and those that were yet to be identified by repentance and faith. God's leading them into an in extremis situation. That's a term, I'm, I'm using that deliberately. That was a term that was used, that we used in the Navy to describe like when two ships were on a collision course and they were absolutely going to hit unless there was some kind of drastic action taken immediately. Right? And it was God, Yahweh, that was leading them into this grave circumstance that would cause them to return to Him. He was orchestrating the whole thing. And as soon as they would cry out to him, and they will, because God's determined that they will, God's ready to move. He's ready to act. He's ready to rescue his people. He's ready to be for them instead of against them. He's ready to be for them, teeler, teeler, teacher, healer, and warrior. Three things. Let me show you this. It's so great. Really, it's wonderful. First look at verses 19 through 22. He says, for a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right. Or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. This is cool. Now, when you think about this, the necessary chastisements and the necessary disciplines of God, right? Towards his people do not nullify his grace. They are an expression of his grace. Zion or Jerusalem is not going to cease to exist, though it deserves to. Instead, their weeping is going to be no more. As soon as they call upon the Lord, as soon as He hears their humble cry of repentance, God will rise to answer. The bread of adversity, the water of affliction, that He has forced them to eat and to drink in this whole situation, will have accomplished their divine purpose And no longer will God's people turn a deaf ear to his voice. As a teacher, the Lord disciplines his people. He reveals himself to them in their suffering. And then graciously, he leads them out of it. Beloved, God's grace is at work before repentance as well as after it. Now, here's the thing. Of course, Yahweh had always been Israel's teacher, right? I mean, he always had been. But the people, and especially the leaders, had been willfully blind, and they refused to recognize Him as such. And through this adversity and affliction that was brought about through Assyria, the Lord would reveal Himself anew to them as their teacher. And this time, they will recognize Him as such, and they will be willing to be taught by Him. They will hear His voice again in the proclamation of the Word. Man, that's good news. To a people that have lost the ability to hear God. God promises, you will hear my voice again. Right? And as a result, they'll cast away their idols. 
All of them. It's the natural consequence, isn't it, of true repentance? I mean, that's really what happens. In true repentance, you cast away the idol that you were once serving, whether it's you or something else. Idols speak of what? A divided heart, right? Divided loyalties. And there can be no divided heart among those that have returned wholeheartedly to the Lord as their teacher. In fact, I think it's very interesting here. I think it's very interesting that Isaiah brings up the issue of idols. And I'll tell you why. It's because the Lord's very very first commandment was what? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You will what? You shall have no other gods before me. Isaiah is basically saying, Judah, you need to return to the basics. You need to return to the basics. And someone who's truly repentant is not offended when a preacher says, you need to return to the basics. Then Isaiah goes on to speak of the Lord as healer. Look at it. Verses 23 through 26. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, fodder with salt, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water. In the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of His people and heals the wounds inflicted by His blows. This is really cool. Look, Isaiah speaks of the Lord as doing what? Well, binding up the brokenness of His people and the wounds that have been lovingly and graciously inflicted by whom? By Him. And He heals the land. His rain ensures bumper crops, bounteous harvest, prosperous herds, working animals that are strong because they're not just eating regular fodder. They're getting fodder with salt. You, you, would, you would reserve fodder with salt for the animals that you were going to slaughter, for the animals that you were going to eat or the animals that you were going to offer in sacrifice. And now even the donkeys are eating seasoned fodder. Like there's so much of it, just everybody's getting it, right? Trickle down kind of stuff. Now obviously it speaks of this recovery that would follow Sennacherib's invasion, but at the same time, obviously envision something greater, right? Of which the immediate recovery is just a foretaste, right? Look at it. Isaiah goes on to speak of this transformed cosmos, right? Streams will flow on the tops of mountains, you know. The moon will be as bright as the sun. The sun will be seven times brighter. Like, that's not normal, right? Clearly at this point, Isaiah is leaving the normal plane of history, And he's exciting our imagination with images of heaven, a world that's too beautiful for words to describe, too great for finite minds to grasp, right? That same long-range perspective is implied also by the ominous reference in verse 25 to the day of great slaughter when towers fall, right? Something far more terrible than Sennacherib's invasion is going to befall the world before the new perfect age of God's blessing can come, right? The truth that Isaiah consistently holds out before us in nearly all of his prophetic statements. But then last, Isaiah describes the Lord as a warrior. 
And look at verses 27 through 33 because these are powerful words. He says, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with His anger, and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and His tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. It will be like for you a second exodus. Right? That's the idea. And the Lord will cause His majestic voice to be heard and the sending blow of His arm to be seen in furious anger in a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when He strikes them with His rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. It'll be to the sound of praise. It'll be to the sound, it'll be to the sound of song. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has been prepared indeed. For the king, it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. That's not very touchy-feely, is it? That's not very user-friendly. That's what we see here. Well, in this last paragraph, there's the same double focus as in the one before it. In the foreground, obviously, is the, the coming judgment of Assyria. But in the background is the universal judgment when the Lord's wrath will fall on all the nations, right? And when we look at this, it's interesting. There's kind of a mixing of metaphors here, right? The name of the Lord, the Lord in all the fullness of His revealed character is seen, first of all, as advancing like a wild forest fire, right? I don't know if you've ever seen video of a forest fire advancing. I had no clue. i got to be honest. I, I I was completely ignorant of how quickly a forest fire moves. I thought it was like, you know, a foot or two every so often. Man, it's like football fields in seconds. It's insane. It is terrifying, right? I mean, it just flies. And then there's this picture of an overflowing stream, this flood that reaches up to the neck, right? Then we're given a picture of God passing the nation, sifting the nations through a sieve of destruction, literally a sieve of falsehood designed to sieve out and expose everything that's false and leave behind only what's true. Then we have a picture of horsemen, a horseman with his bridle, you know, guiding the peoples to their just and appointed destiny. And then to top it all off, we're given a picture of a funeral pyre. A picture of this fire that is stacked and prepared for the rebellious nations and for this king. And that is charged by the breath of the Lord like a stream of sulfur. All those metaphors, as different as they are, point to God as a warrior. Particularly in verses 30 and 32, the Lord will cause His majestic voice to be heard, the descending blow of His arm to be seen, in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with cloudburst and storm and hailstones. Every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them you know, will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres battling with a brandished arm. He will fight with them. It's a startling picture, right? 
You want to be behind that warrior, don't you? The Israelites came to know the Lord as a warrior at the, in, the, in the Exodus, right? When he delivered them by overthrowing the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And then throughout their history, they, they you know, learned him as a warrior from the times when he had to fight with them to discipline them. But then also when he fought graciously for them, demonstrating his faithfulness to his people by overthrowing their enemies. And the overthrow of the Assyrians really is just a foretaste of God's final victory over the nations. And here's the thing. He pictures Judah celebrating in song. That amidst the overthrow of his, of, of the enemies, as God overthrows his enemies, there's heard song and music, the joyful celebration of God's people as his and their enemies are crushed by God's power. In other words, here's the point. On the day of salvation, on the great day of days, God's judgment in the eyes of His people will be seen to be the perfectly just and right thing that it is. And although it is horrific and breathtaking, in its thoroughness. There will be praise and adoration from the people of God as His glory and His majesty and His holiness are revealed. The Lord's action as warrior is His final expression of grace to those that have cried out to Him for salvation before the beginning of the joys of eternity. But there can be no salvation without judgment. That's the point. The Lord's the warrior. Every human being must rec- ultimately reckon with Him either as deliverer or as destroyer. And that's that. What do we take away from this? I'm just going to give you a few things and then I'll give you a chance. But... One of the first lessons I think that jumps out here is that trusting and following the Lord is more than a matter of words or rituals. And we see that's that, you know, it's interesting to me. You know, we see it, we saw it in Romans on Sunday. We see it now. Like it, it, it keeps getting kind of drummed into our, into our heads. It's, it's not just a matter of words or rituals. It's a matter of living active and sincere faith, right? In other words, there's no compartmentalizing Yahweh's Lordship, right? There's no compartmentalizing it. No relegating his kingship to spiritual matters, but leaving the secular matters to, to ourselves, right? In fact, I would say to you that the words of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8 are more than just, you know, good advice or a nice memory verse to memorize or, you know, a nice verse to stitch and hang up in your bathroom or whatever. They're divine truth. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That's fact. That's promise. That's real. I sometimes think we, we kind of regard the Proverbs as in, in wisdom literature, you know, like... In the same way that we regard like homespun wisdom. It's not. 
A second thing that I think is really evident here is the necessity for us as God's people to hear and receive the Word of God as it is, to continually work to have our hearts soft before the Lord, and not to demand that the Word of God be softened or reduced or adjusted to fit our desires. Truth's not always comfortable, is it? Is it? Truth is not always comfortable. But rightly received, it's always beneficial and life-giving, isn't it? So we've got to reject the temptation to sit in judgment on the Word of God. We've got to demand that preachers speak what the Word says. Right? We've got to that, and not demand smooth things and illusions. I'm going to tell you what. If the visible church, if the professing church actually did that, demanded that preachers preach what God says, and not demand smooth words and illusions, there would be no market for false teachers. You realize that? That's true. I mean, we, we focus our ire on the false teachers. Rightly so. They're disobedient to Almighty God. And they lead people in astray and they lead them into hell. But let's not forget that there's people that gladly hear them too. And demand they say what they say. Third, the Lord, listen, this is clear. He's a God of unbending justice and judgment, isn't He? Like, nothing slips by Him. But praise God, He's also a God of immense grace. He, He delights to rescue sinners. He delights to be merciful to the undeserving. But He always demands of us what? Repentance and faith. Return and rest in order to enjoy the blessings of His grace. Simply hearing the words of promise are not enough. There's got to be a personal response, a recognition and a confession of sin, repentance from the way that leads to death, and wholehearted trust in the Lord. Salvation does not come apart from judgment, right? Even in our own lives. In order to really be saved, you've got to accept the judgment of God against who you are by nature. Don't you? If you want to grow in grace, you better realize that there's nothing in you that can empower that. You better realize that you're hanging entirely upon the grace and the mercy of God to sanctify you and to grow you in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that that precludes from you any effort. That's not what I'm saying. You're to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But what? It's God who is at work in you, both to will and to do, correct? Last thing is this. I'm sure there's other stuff, but this is the last thing I was thinking about. This text reminds us yet again that God is sovereign over everything. And He's moving everything to its appointed end. I I guarantee you that was a comfort to Isaiah. Living in Judah, you know, living in Jerusalem. It ought to be an encouragement to us all the time. J.I. Packer rightly said these words. He said, to know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless, but it stabilizes the saints. It does. And when I read this, and then we read, you know, we get over to Chapters 36 and 37 and exactly what Isaiah is preaching and predicting happens. All right then. God's word can be trusted, can it? Don't have to jump through any hoops. 
Don't have to, you know, I don't know now. Do you think you can really? Yeah, he's completely trustworthy. Demonstrated right here. So your thoughts real quick.